Uncommon is a production by Neural, a unique digital agency. Neural specializes in content production in the areas that matter most to your content strategy across podcast production, video production, and social media. If you want to increase your conversion or grow your brand trust, head to neural.com to request a callback. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My name is Jordan Michaelides and I'm the host of Uncommon, a show that asks the why on business, media, current affairs, and sport. If you like this episode, do leave us a written review on your podcast app, particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts, as it does help the feed work out. If you like this sort of content, find all previous guests, just head to neural.com slash uncommon. For the full video, you can search Uncommon Show on YouTube. For social, you can keep up to date with behind the scenes at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. With all that being said, let's get into the episode. My guest this week, Sarah Davidson, host of Seize the A podcast, the book which comes out 2nd of September as well, so about a week from now, but for those listening, it will be out, uh, founder of Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar as well. Uh, I was trying to find some dirt from Jen when we first got into our research <laughs> and you're squeaky clean, uh, at least at the moment, as far I'm as like- I know. I believe you haven't researched hard enough if you think I'm squeaky clean. (laughs) But let's go with that. (laughs) One thing that was really interesting is in every interview, you've mentioned crime books and no one has ever referred back to it. And I thought, is that why she got into law? Like literally (laughs) she just wrote, she just used to get, you know, she's a little nerdy kid and she's reading like crime books and she's like, I'm going to be a lawyer. No, interesting question. And you're so right. So I already am just so thrilled that you do as much research on people as I do. <laughs> just get really into the dirt straight away. Uh, such an interesting one, though. I loved my criminal law subject, but that actually isn't what drew me into law. Law was much more a sort of, um, so speaking of no dirt, you mentioned nerdy kid. Yes. Primary school, super nerd, teacher's pet, really academic, loved books, loved reading, like cried when I didn't get given homework on my first day in prep. Um, But that's cool now though. So it's not necessarily dirt. I mean, it's cool now, but okay. So in between there was a a huge intervening period where I decided actually I wanted to be the opposite. I wanted to prove that like I wasn't your typical kind of Asian nerd. I don't know if you know, but I was adopted from South Korea and so... I grew up in a super white Caucasian country bumpkin family leading to a very interesting, unique cultural identity. But uh, primary school was very nerdy. And then I think in high school, part of that figuring out what my identity was, was actually proving that I wasn't that nerdy Asian kid, that I was cool and that I could do boys and parties and drinking. And I'd been a ballerina in my first career and training had taken up so much of my life that when I quit, that also tipped me over into like, oh, oh my God, there's like so much amazing fun life stuff when you're not watching what you eat, exercising all the time and being super organized and rigorous training. So the dirt was, I reckon from year seven to year 11, I wagged, I smoked, I was drunk all the time. Like I was such a naughty kid. There is so much of a huge diversion and tangent that thank goodness social media wasn't around. So I can choose to tell it how I would like rather than my photos telling it for me. So Um, you would have been the kid like, the unexpected kid teacher walks around laneway by the side of the school and you're just having a fag, just like. 
not even joking. I got caught so many times smoking my uniform and I went to a uh, I went to Shelford, which was a private girls' school, and yeah. then I moved to McGraw, which was super Asian nerdy. So that need to prove that I wasn't an Asian nerd was even stronger in the first couple of years of just rebelling. And I know that the other the classmates uh, that I had were, were just so frustrated that I wasn't making the most of my place there, and I was just they just had no time for me. I was such a rebel for no reason and thought I was so cool and gangster. Mm. So law was because by the end of year 11, mum sat me down and was like, you know, this is not a sustainable life path. You're wasting your brain. Uh, You really need to get it together because year 12, you've got one chance to sort of get it, you know, outlive this rebel phase that you think you're going through and um, do justice to, to your mind and figure out, you know, a life path for yourself. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll just get it together. I don't know what happened. Something twigged and I got it together just on time for year 12. And I ended up with quite a good score. And so law was much more a, oh, well, I've got this, this amazing score that I never expected I could achieve. I don't know what I want to do because I obviously haven't been thinking about my career or the future. What is going to leave the most doors open. That was the start of my sort of hedging my bets and realizing I had way too many interests. I loved too many different things. And that made it really hard to have a clear pathway. I never sort of thought I want to be a lawyer. This is what I'm going to do. It was more like, I don't know what I'm going to do. What's going to allow me to defer that decision as long as possible. <laughs> really? That, that, you know, it's interesting. You said about your mom and how she sat you down, but I was just thinking like that must've been a really fascinating predicament. She would have been in, um, as an adoptive mother, I mean, she she unlike other parents would have had the the mindset in her mind that she has a responsibility not just for you as a child, but the fact that she's trying to create a better life for you, and she would always probably be thinking about that in the back of her head, like particularly if something like this came up, and she's like, oh fuck, I've got <laughs> I've, I've got the girl and she's smoking cigarettes, she's doing this and that. That must have been like really uh, that must have been a big deal for her. I think it was a very, very difficult time that, you know, you're a teenager, you've got hormones going all over the place and you just have no real perspective on the impact of your decisions and behaviour on other people. But now as an adult, mm. looking back, I just In hindsight. shudder thinking what I put her through. Uh, like now we know it had a happy ending and that I sort of came out <laughs> the other end of that rebellious phase. But at the time, I mean, she there were many times I think where she could have thought it was all over. Like I was just like a terrible kid who just lost sight of achievement and productivity. And I I think why I have become so fascinated by sliding doors moments now in people's pathways and the weird tangents we go off on and how we lose who we are and we come back to it and all the different phases you need to go through to really figure out what your identity is. I think I'm so fascinated by it because I've been through that. I've been yeah, through you have super well-adjusted as a younger child, not finding, we got bullied a lot. We had a lot of racism. We had a lot of people poking like questions at our family situation. And I was honestly never bothered by it. I was, I got through the primary school years pretty unscathed and not really questioning it too much. But high school was obviously when I had my sort of moment of, oh, I need to prove that I'm whatever. <laughs> and um, Particularly at Shelford as well. I mean, my sister went to Shelford. Oh, think, really? Yeah. I think any private school, which is pretty, you know, played, you've got a bunch of ordinary kids coming from upper middle class families. It would have been unusual to them. Yeah. And it was 
I think I spent so much of that time either trying to conform completely and be like one of the cool Brighton kids and I thought I was blonde for like my whole time at Shelford. It was a rude awakening when I realized I wasn't. (laughs) And then when I moved schools, it was the opposite. I wanted to stand out. I didn't want to be assumed to be, have an identity that I hadn't grown up with. So I went completely the other way. And looking back now, I just can see how much that was just a struggle to find who I was. That was just a struggle Mm. to find the balance between uniqueness and sameness and, and add to that the mess of the adolescent brain. And now it's just made me so sure of what I truly believe and tell everyone now, which is that your pathway in life is not linear. All of us will have a weird uncharacteristic tangent or two or three on the way to figuring out who we ultimately want to become. But I don't regret any of those. I mean, I regret it for the years it took off my mum's life, but that, you know, I got a lot out of my system then that allowed me to settle down on time for a law career. I got a lot out of my system that taught me the things I didn't want to do or the people, I, the person I didn't want to be. And I got mm. it together on time, obviously, to create the pathway that I ultimately just went back to being the absolute nerd that I always was and shed that skin of thinking I was a cool gangster and <laughs> settled down to be a complete nerd again at, at uni. And again, that whole phase at uni, I took on another skin and sort of had to peel back layers and figure out, was I more nerdy? Was I more arty-farty? Mm. I did law and arts to keep both sides alive. That's right. There's that constant pull of like all the sides of your personality and it's only sort of towards the middle to the end of your 20s and early 30s that I think all that mess just starts to calm down and you realise, okay, these are the things that do stick. These are the things that were just me getting carried away with what everyone else was saying or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, so ultimately, very long answer to a short question. <laughs> yes, fundamentally a super nerd. Uh, I loved my law career but not as a forever decision. I loved it because I, I think the adoption has made me very much as an adult and excluding that small rebel phase, very conscious of making the most of every opportunity that Mm. is available. I think anyone who has that sort of drive in life, it makes it difficult for you ever to make one choice because you're so, you want to take every opportunity. Um, And it makes sense now in hindsight that I've ended up moving out of a career that's very one track and one like single-minded to a, a job that does allow me to pursue lots of different interests and things at once. Well, maybe it's the fact that because you have experience in experiencing moments where things aren't so certain that it's not as much of an issue for you. Like had you been born in Australia with the same, uh, let's say, conscientiousness and creativity that you currently have, I, I do wonder whether you had just continued pursuing law or if you'd gone down the business route knowing your own family history. I do wonder that. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's interesting to me because I've got a friend in Sydney that um, I worked with an old job. Uh, her name's Sue. She's actually Korean as well, but she was adopted probably around the same age uh, by a Belgian family. Oh. And she lived there and then she immigrated here with her partner oh, probably 10 years ago. So I, I can't actually remember if she's a citizen or not by now, but... Um, she, you meet her and you realize like she's Aussie, yeah. uh, but it's, it's really like you hear about her life story and you're like, fuck, you could write a book on this. Like, it's just absolutely fascinating knowing what happened in Korea during that period of time. I think you're both about the same age. Mm. Um, do you, this is something I asked her, but do you ever get intrigued by family history 
at all. Like I've done this whole 23andMe stuff mm, recently I did that too. and the gene tests and all that. Do you, did you find anything that sort of piqued your interests at all? I, interestingly, haven't ever had any great desire to go and research my biological family. I think when you're adopted at such a young age, at sort of six months, before you have any capacity for memories, I have no Korean identity. Like I don't remember who I was when I was there. So from the beginning as a clean slate child, all my memories are of growing up Australian. All my family memories are of my parents here and our parents, you know, their parents and all our extended family. And the curiosity that I've had has been more around the 23andMe stuff, so medical history and Mm. things that you would want to look out for in your um, biological background more than culturally who's my family. And I know a lot of adoptees who haven't necessarily gotten along with their adoptive families feel a bit of a gap and that's what drives their search for someone who they might have a deeper connection with. But because my family here is the only family I've known and we're incredibly Mm. close, there's never, I've never felt a gap. So there's never been a driver for that other than if you put my biological parents in a room next to me and said they're there, I'd be interested to go and open the door and talk to them. But because it was career in the 80s, there's no, you know, digital records, the addresses, like the information they probably had in the beginning was scant, let alone after 30 years of pushing papers around. The actual process is so laborious as well that you've got to really want to find that person or to find your parents. And I'm not sure in a cross-cultural adoption as well, you have a language barrier. I'm not sure what it would necessarily achieve. You might find out something that you didn't want to know. What Mm. If you do find out that you're prone to Parkinson's or something, like you're still not, it's not 100% chance that you're going to get that. So does that information actually help you? Um, there's like a, a small curiosity if it was an easy task, but I've never had a great yearning because my identity is all here. Yeah. And, and you're more, that is your story now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I found it interesting because I remember when, um, when you got married, as you watch influencers get married on Instagram, there's, <laughs> there's your brother and he was like quite visibly upset when he was walking you down the aisle. Is he your biological brother or were you both adopted as well what why do you think that was such like an emotional moment for him so we have what i think is a really beautiful story we're not biological brother and sister but we were both adopted from the same orphanage and through the same process in from the late 80s to early 90s where a lot of koreans were adopted to australia and he so it's a blind process my parents got allocated us without sort of knowing a lot of information about like the uh system didn't know what my birthday was or whatever and we're four years apart but we have the same birthday and Koreans in the Buddhist belief think that the the child chooses the family not the family chooses the child so they believe that we were meant to grow up together so even though we were born into different scenarios like the stars sort of conspired to bring us together to live in, in the same family and I think we've always lived that out that we're completely opposite (laughs) like I am so overdriven and academic and curious and even in my rebellious phase I think it was still driven by an underlying curiosity about pushing myself to my limits even though they weren't professional limits I Mm. still had that sort of drive to just extend myself and type personality 
Yeah, like if I was going to be a rebel, I was going to excel at being a rebel. And even now, when I when I'm being a health person and I'm resting, I'm like I'm going to be a plus at resting. Yeah. Um, and whereas, and I love travel. I love things that stretch my mind, and I've always want to you know try new things. And I love discomfort. I seek that 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 extension out. My brother's the opposite. He is such a comfort zone dude. Like he's just so chill. If he never, he, we've traveled a lot as a family, but if he never traveled again, like he wouldn't, he's like, why would I leave the spot where all my stuff is that I like? So, just, sounds like my brother. Yeah. <laughs> like he's very, and a lot of people are like that. And he's taught me so much about your way to yay and your, or your pathway being fundamentally different based on your composition, like the things that you're going to find interesting and the circumstances that you find fulfilling. So uh, we've always lived very, very opposite pathways, but that has meant that we're such good siblings for each other because we teach each other what the diametric opposite part of the population is interested in and likes and we kind of push each other in each other's direction. He pushes me to be a little bit more like smell the roses appreciate mm. the small things like stay at home and like enjoy the, the beautiful home that you have. And I push him to go and like do other things, but yeah, they, um, we are incredibly close and I think he's so, he's a tradie. He's like super blokey, never yeah. shows emotion, but on my 21st, my 30th and the wedding, he's cried. And I think yeah. it's like one time <laughs> where all his, emotions that he never sort of shows towards just our family out. and love. It just, he gets overwhelmed. Like everyone's there and it was just such a momentous moment. And I think also it meant a lot to him because our parents had separated and I did, my dad didn't walk me down the aisle and I asked him and it was like such a big role for him to play, to be like giving his sister away. And um, yeah, he's, his first tattoo when he was 18 was my name on oh, his card. Like <laughs> he came home and we were just like, what the fuck is that? So basically <laughs> your your brother is like a golden retriever just behind you. Yes. <laughs> we're best friends in the weirdest way. Wow. And like we piss each other off so much because we have such different we want such different things from life and we kind of want to shake each other. Like he's like, just fucking stay still for a minute. And I'm like, just get out of your routine. But it's, it's um, yeah, it's beautiful when we do have those moments because he doesn't show them that often. And I'm such a like emotional person that when I see his true love for us and like for the family, I'm like, like everyone, the first thing I saw when I walked down the aisle wasn't Nick standing there and all our family members. It was everyone bawling. Yeah, he was bawling. So everyone else is bawling. So I'm just like, "Hello, I'm the bride." <laughs> yeah, he really did. Uh, you're gonna have to give him shit for to the end of your days uh, about that moment. So he realizes, like, because it is he really like stole the show initially in that video. It's quite, it's oh, quite yeah. amazing. Yeah. I've printed out photos, the photos, all the photos of me walking down the aisle of me like, <laughs> I'm getting married, and him like. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But it's but beautiful. It is. It's it's nice. I think um my dad's very similar in that regard. He's uh he had a trade but runs has run a business for decades now. And uh the last time I really saw him cry, cry was probably my grandmother's funeral uh early last year. And uh it's a similar thing. They just they just can't 
hold on to it anymore. Like they just don't know what to, <laughs> what to, what to do with themselves and it just comes out and they're embarrassed and uh, it's, it's, it's nice. It, it is. So, it sounds nice. bad to say it's nice, but it is because it's like, oh, you're human. It's good. It's good. I to think know. it's such a nice reminder that they have the capacity to feel that way, even though they don't yeah. show it all the time. It's like once every five years, if you show it, that reminds me. That's enough. That'll yeah. keep me going now for like a decade. That's good enough. <laughs> um, you were speaking before about Shelford McRob. I know you were as this for for a rap sheet. Ducks of the school at McRob. <laughs> uh, Bachelor of Law Arts at Monash won a bunch of distinguished awards, including becoming a legal research assistant for the deputy director of the master's program, then just casually walked into King and Wood Mallison's focusing on commercial side. So I, I've worked with people like you on the M&A PE funds uh, lawyers, having come from sort of um, investment banking, broking and, and that area of finance. Speaks three <laughs> languages, French, Italian, Chinese, um, I was doing these notes and every time I do like the early years, I like, I like to ask people like, what's your insight? But honestly, I just think I look at this and I go like, what are you bad at? <laughs> <laughs> Realistically. A lot of things. Okay. Ra- lot of give things. us the rap sheet. Tennis. Yeah. Uh, cannot, cannot play tennis. <laughs> um, surprisingly, a, a few small things. So we are such a perfect example of nature versus nurture. We're like a real-time experiment of like what's genetic and what's from your environment. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, I'm great at golf. I'm like I'm basically I'm Korean to my core. Like all all famous golfing women are Korean. <laughs> yeah, if you think about it, they are they're either Japanese, Korean, or Chinese. Yeah, some, some Chinese, but yeah, Japanese or Korean is sort of like the dominant group. Well, I think this is also why I love that you asked the question first, because most people go straight to sort of now that A type, like curious, high achieving, seizing the A, all that stuff. But I love that you went to my rebellious phase first, because it's a good reassurance to any mothers out there whose kids are playing up. Like it can <laughs> all can come well. together. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. can eventually sort it out. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny because I remember my mum for a period of time, she used to call me uh jordan gonna michael ladies because i used to always just say like i'm going to or i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that and she i just remember it too because she turned around to me she goes like you know what you just always say you're gonna do something don't you and like that was it and it was so it was brutal (laughs) it was like i must have she must have been having a bad day and i must have uh pushed too many buttons (laughs) there i am but i remember like Hearing that and thinking, like, you know what? Fuck you! I'm gonna, I'm gonna do shit. I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> well, my big thing was, other than this, obviously, small glitch in the in the matrix. Um, I think my thirst to kind of try so many different things, and even within law, I like you look at my subject choices. They were so broad, and I yeah. did. So many extracurricular activities. I wanted to work on capital cases in death row. Like I wanted to do Aboriginal law and women's law, like international law. Like I've never limited myself to one thing and always just been so interested to learn more. And I think never been too scared to be a beginner at something because I'm my curiosity to find out if I can do it or not is stronger. But in terms of (laughs) the biggest thing that that makes me not very good at is pacing myself and making definitive choices. Like if I could just never make a decision and never eliminate any possibility and do every career ever, 
if I physically had the capacity to do that, I'd probably do that yeah. because I have no ability to pace myself, no ability to slow down. I'm terrible at practicing what I preach on self-care and smelling the roses and slowing down. Like I think that's probably what I'm worst at. Hmm. Um, in terms of actual skills and tasks, there's plenty of things I'm terrible at. Um, one that I think is hysterical and I don't understand where it came from is time scale. I have absolutely no time scale. So even friends from uni that I now say, oh, I figured out that I've got a bad time scale. Like, dude, you've been like that for 15 years. Like, why are you only figuring that out now? When, when you say time scale, is that like you're late to meetings or what, no. what do you mean by that? So I'll say, oh, yeah, like a year ago, you know, this happened. Ah, okay. And people will be like, 17 years ago (laughs) or I'll say like the other day and it will have been like eight years ago or the opposite I'll be like you know back in like 1995 and they'll be like you were six so it wasn't in 1995 that we were out of that club in New York like that didn't happen like I just have no it's so weird and I don't know whether it's because I've crammed so much into such a short time or I just have no I don't know it's just so weird and I also do the same thing with there were 200 people in the room when there were like 10 and there were like 5,000 people in the room when there were like four, but then the other way around as well. Like I have no <laughs> time, numbers, counting, absolutely no ability to accurately guess. So no situational awareness. <laughs> no situational awareness. Like high emotional situational awareness and I'm very reflective. I'm sure you can tell. Like I'm an overthinker, an analyzer. Mm. I love to like look at things in hindsight and analyze what, growth process I was going through and what, you know, people's love languages were in interaction. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by human, just human behavior and tendencies. And I probably now know enough about myself to know I would have really enjoyed behavioral neuroscience or psychology if I hadn't gone mm. into law. Um, but another thing that's really interesting is I think maybe five years ago, I couldn't have answered any of these questions. I didn't know anything about myself until the last couple of years. It's only in hindsight that you really figure out who you are and what you were doing and what things were, you know, what tendencies or um, strengths or weaknesses were in play at certain times. But yeah, I'm bad at lots of things, trust me. Oh, and the one thing I've been terrible at since I was a child, which has consistently seen me through my whole life is I'm really bad at going to sleep. Like really, I will resist it as if I'm not going to wake up tomorrow. So all the, all the things that you've mentioned is basically similar to my personality. You're basically an A type ultra conscientious individual. Yeah. Which is really hard when you're young because the problem with being an A-type individual is you feel like you've got to have the achievements of a 40-year-old at 20. Absolutely. (laughs) And And you don't even know why. Yeah, it just ruins you. Uh, The only way that I found out was like, uh, when I made myself just too anxious and I had to finally go see a psychologist and like they just sort of dealt me... um, dealt me my medicine and and said like this is you just got to like realize this is who you are and uh there's certain things like that the the sleeping thing is like an issue for me as well i don't know if you found this with the lockdown like i'm my sleeping patterns are sort of all over but i can get to sleep every night if i read for about an hour before Mm -hmm. bed it's like the only thing that and it's good because it's something that i consistently do i have consistently done for like two three years but if i don't do that i can't sleep Yeah, that's so interesting. I think people like us who do get so much out of the daytime, like we love 
the productivity and action and yeah. learning of the day, it's very hard to switch off and sacrifice hours of the day to sleep. Mm. But since I was a kid, like mum always said, you know, she just have patted my head for like two hours and I just get to sleep and she'd like just start to leave the room. My head would pop up and I'd be like, hey. <laughs> and she'll say that to Nick and he's like, yeah, she still fucking does that like every well, night. Actually, <laughs> here's an interesting thought. Did you ever like with sport or other events, like did you ever have things like needing to needing to nervous pee or like feeling queasy or anything like that before doing things? Like I, I know that like I was always really like I did rowing at high school and before every rowing race I would vomit. Like just no nervous way. vomit. Yeah. Before every race. And I remember the last race because I knew I was gonna quit. I didn't vomit and my coach was like, Are you right? Quitting, like, <laughs> What's what's going on here? And then like two weeks later, I like yeah, I'm not coming back to rowing next season. Oh uh, no way! So yeah, did you ever have anything like that? I am, I think, more of a person who internalizes all those nerves and emotions, and I'm super together outwardly during the thing that I'm nervous about. But then I kind of crash afterwards. Like I'll have a panic attack after the fact I often have like a retrospective response to things so I and that is actually bad for me because I don't get the signs that I should get that I need to slow down before I I've kind of already gone too far and like totally fucked it up yeah I'll like have all my reactions later and it's um actually something I've had therapy about that I'm a coper and I put on a mask and I can just push and push and push and push and then suddenly my body goes "Mm mm-mm yeah, my mine's similar. It's like a, there's a build up, and then when I'm in the moment, I'm completely fine. But afterwards, it's the come down that uh, starts to affect you, and like you're wrecked for days, or you're wrecked for a certain period of time, or you just you basically burnout is like the constant th- thing that you're battling against. It's because you can push through stuff, and you just I don't I'm really not good at recognizing when something <laughs> is too much. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, that's my best answer to your question. Really, like. Yeah. But it's I'm like very very lucky that I can be not amazing but proficient at a lot of different things but but overall doing less of the things before I totally overdo it is my huge weakness like so (laughs) match a maiden then I mean obviously it was a side hobby for about a year until you quit law you're growing up in this Anglo-Saxon family they don't really give a shit about whether you continue <laughs> going with law or not. You've rationalized it to like, okay, I can come back to this anytime, which is a good point. Um, and I had a similar thing because I did accounting, banking and finance and I went into, my dad was like, you've got to be in a like, typical Greek, like you've got to be a profession, you know, you've got to do yeah. accounting or law or this banking or whatever. For me, it was like really liberating to eventually say like, fuck this, I'm not doing this area of work. And I had a guy that I worked with that had a similar personality and we're still really good friends with to this day, uh, had the same thing. It's just like it dampens the creative element of your personality, mm-hmm. but you're always battling with like some voice in your in the back of your head that you've got to keep doing this thing. Um, I was just curious, like when was the aha moment when you realized you could sort of prove people wrong that uh, actually it was the better choice? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's, I'm not even sure I could pick a particular moment. Like, I think it's beautifully simplistic and wonderful that to have an aha moment. I'm not sure that I did in that regard, in terms of the actual moment of liberation from the metrics and standards that I held myself to before versus showing that I could actually 
do whatever I wanted and still earn more than I learned at the, earned at the law firm. I think it was a gradual process of really, it was very hard. And as you said, like, it's very hard to let go of the ladder and the values that you've held yourself to for all this time. And that everyone around you thinks that promotions and, you know, mm. all the things that you aspire to for so long. I don't think I even knew that I didn't care about them. Like I just, yeah. you get so blinded by the gratification of productivity and other people thinking that you have an objectively successful life. And it does feel good to, it be, does. you know, it's go nice. to a, yeah, it does. It feels really nice to go to a job that's respectable and that has a, a clear pathway and that you feel like you're progressing and you're learning. And I think that's almost why it's more so dangerous because you don't even notice that in that process a whole side of your personality and maybe even the dominant side of your personality is just getting stifled slowly. Well, who whose gratification were you looking for? Um, interestingly for me, I didn't have the parental gratification thing that a lot of other Asians might have in terms of the tiger parents who have those expectations. And that's, again, why I get even more confused because I'm like, I was just trying to trick myself. Like it wasn't even my parent. There was no external pressure. It was just me thinking this is respectable. This is a good pathway. This is stable. I'm creating a future for myself. And, And it was. It was a wonderful future for myself. I don't think I even would have hated it if I continued. Uh, It was more that slowly, slowly as matcha began to grow and as my my creative tendencies started to have more of an outlet and I I sort of started to wake them up again through needing logos, writing copy, starting to do events and like talk to people in a different way and just reawaken this whole side of my brain. It was a slow, I reckon a year or so process of realizing, oh my God, by contrast, the fulfillment I had in law is like paling in comparison to the fulfillment I feel when this side of my brain is given a chance to, to thrive. Mm. Um, but in terms of the sort of liberation of like, oh my God, I've been completely able to let go of caring about what that world was. And for so long, I had to say, I'm a lawyer. Like I had to tell people I've got a business, but I'm a lawyer. Like I still, I still held on to that title for a long well, time. It sounds like you were gratifying your identity then. Yeah, I think so. But I reckon it was around the time where where we started to be able to pay me the same wage as I was paid. It was actually, interestingly, never about money. My husband is quite financial metric based. I never have been. I'm much more fulfillment orientated. But when he literally sat me down and showed me the figures and were like, you are earning more than you were there. And obviously putting in a lot of work, like a lot of work and a lot of sacrifices, but we've built that up from nothing in a year's time and you were in fourth year as an M&A lawyer, like, and you also could probably make that at Coles when you actually break down the hourly rate. When those metrics started to be highlighted to me of like, I wasn't walking away from what I thought I was. I was actually jumping towards something so much more liberated and free and dynamic and exciting and Better quality of life. Yeah. I was like, oh, Maybe, I don't know why I held so much attachment to what I thought was successful, but this is so much more free. Yeah. Like, I can go anywhere I want. I can take this business in any direction. I can learn anything. And Well, this, this is interesting because I feel like this is something that's been missed a lot is your partner, Nick. Like, he seems to be a really important component here. I'm going to say just on Matcha Maiden, Matcha Milk Bar, we'll come back to the diesel investment, but 
I really think if people want to dig into the early years and things like how did you discover the powder, go back, listen to James Harrison's episode with you. It's really good for digging into that sort of stuff. And I think he's already really covered that stuff. Well, it's obvious where you guys are at now. It's been around for about five years, but I, I want to just jump onto Nick. So how did the two of you actually meet? <laughs> A nightclub. Did you? Which nightclub? Baroque. So Nick oh. used to... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you were like me, you got a Baroque. Did you go to Boutique? Yeah, Boutique. I was a promoter at Eve. Like again, Eve. this was that that side of me that uh, was a wild child for a little while there. Um, and oh, what were the what was the uh, some of the other venues? There was one six one. There was yeah one six. There was Cuba. Like seven. in the early early days, Cuba. seven was like I'd retired. I reckon by really? by yeah by seven and and CQ and all those places. How old are you? Because I'm thirty. Thirty one. Okay, so you. Uh, but I started seven. when I was like twelve. So. Okay, okay. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever went to a nightclub was I was underage. I was like 15 or 16 and we went to seven and my mate bought me a shot of Bacardi 151. Oh. Like I never had really heavy, heavy duty spirits. Johnny, he's my best man at my uh, my wedding coming up and uh, he gave me this shot and we'd just been to Hungry Jack's because we were already drunk from so drinking Bacardi breezes or whatever it was. And then he gave me that and I immediately beelined to the bathroom and just spewed everywhere. And oh my God. it hit the so- toilet seat and hit my <laughs> pants. Oh no. And there was a line of vomit. And my mum the next day was like, what's this? I'm like, uh, I fell in a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> I fell in a puddle. <laughs> uh. Oh, 151 was like my really clever tactic. I'm like, I'm such a lightweight. So all I need was just one 151 shot. So I would go in totally sober, just do one of those shots and it would keep me going for hours. Oh, that hours. stuff was like at a young hours. age, that stuff was like rocket fuel. That was It's like petrol. Like it oh. tastes like petrol. Yeah, yeah. You can feel I could feel the burn. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So give us like the the story of you two meeting. Were you just like sipping on a drink in the corner and you got introduced in sort of like the outdoors section and you're like, yeah, I'm a promoter. Like, yeah, that pretty much. Of- <laughs> no, no, no. So Nick used to, he was a partner in Baroque House. So he ran it for like, I don't know, maybe six years, seven years, actually maybe even eight years. And I was always an Eve host. So I didn't often go to Baroque, but on the Ooh. night we were at Eve hosts on a Saturday. So we could go to Baroque on a Friday and Friday was the night that Nick and uh, his business partner and one of our dear, dear friends, Bodhi, used to be partners in. And I met Nick first when I was underage and he used to let me in. And I think we both had long-term partners then, so it was very platonic. Like it was very like just let me in and I'll make, I'll like buy drinks and bring my girlfriends. Uh, And then we met again in the middle of one of my uni exam periods and I think he did the sort of 2009 equivalent of sliding into my DMs. He Facebook chatted me like he saw me online because I was on the internet because I was studying and I was at a friend's house who's also a really good friend of ours, Samantha Gash, who you might have heard on the podcast, the Mm. ultramarathon runner. So I was at her house studying for contract law and I just, she was like, what is wrong with you? You're just not even tuned in. And I was having this deep chat with Nick. Like we just somehow got on this (laughs) tangent of realizing we had all these things in common. And then he was like, you know, do you want to come over and like watch a movie? And I was like, okay, sure. So I left her house, just bailed on our study session and went over to his house in my Monash jumper, like no makeup on, Ugg boots. 
and then like woke up the next day and was like, oh, I'm still here. And then I just didn't leave. And that was like 10, 11 years ago. Damn. We were yeah, together but- like straight away. It was weird. That's so funny. I remember like my partner, Lauren, and I first started chatting over MSN. <laughs> Jesus. With like lots of capital letters and like oh, weird. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I remember at one point I had the um the chat script saved somewhere, uh, <gasps> but I can't find them anymore. And neither can I see. have our those that um Facebook chat thing. I have that printed out. So we had this whole our first big conversations were we did alphabet I don't know how we got onto this but we <laughs> I know I know so tragic we did alphabets like we would send each other the alphabet to teach each other about ourselves so mm-hmm. we'd have to pick an interesting fact for each letter and like wow. we'd change the alphabet back and forth <laughs> like I've got them all printed out in this book that on the wedding night I got oh. them out that's fucking gold. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've got to really, really look into that. Like that, uh, there's surely there has to be something where you can like go back into the MSN uh, chat, like history records or some shit like that. Surely. If you've got like a Microsoft account or whatever it's connected to. It'd be saved uh, somewhere. Like I'm sure you can dig it out. But like because it's been so long, I don't know how long you guys have been together, but I have not been single. For a, yeah, right. So same. Yeah. We haven't been single like during the rise of the apps, like I don't know how to flirt. So yeah, look, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no I, game. We have you had this conversation where yes. you're like, how I, I we had this chat like even like a week or so ago because we saw like um I always talk to my best man about like being single now and he talks about like Tinder and how Mm-mm. it's just it's it doesn't sound enjoyable Mm-mm. at all. It doesn't sound unique or it sounds really robotic to be honest. It sounds fucking awful. Um, and we were just like, Laura and I were like strategizing, like, what would you do to, to find, cause you know, like you've got <laughs> Tinder, uh, it's not like, it's not deemed as appropriate anymore to sort of go up and chat to people at bars and stuff. Well, we've got COVID going on, right? So you can't really do that for another year. Uh, maybe extracurricular activities that like maybe you meet someone at a gym, but like it's, and friendship groups, obviously. Mm. But, but like, like what, what would you do? It's sounds I, I, I keep saying to Nick, I'm like, you can rest assured that I'm <laughs> I'm sticking with this because I love you a little bit, but like more so because I'm petrified of how I would be single. But like if you if you did go back and read them, it is so hysterical and but also cringeworthy. So cringe, yeah. To what to read yourself flirting and be like, did I think that was sexy? Yeah, I thought. Did my, I think that would work? Like, my whole shtick was like, um, because I was doing some like fashion, sort of, like, what uh, are those units? They're not VCE, but they're sort of like they call them like vet subjects or something oh, like that. Oh yeah, yeah. So like I was doing this fashion textiles thing because I thought I want to be a tailor and. Like I had this whole like um, internship lined up at Rush magazine. Oh my and god! I remember like I I would talk about it to all the girls because it was like yeah this is my this is my whole thing right this is how I'll I'll get in for a date or a whatever and uh, <laughs> it's so funny it's so funny like looking back at those conversations I was like to oh yeah we'll go to the city we'll do like a tour of the city check out some clothing shops and all that <laughs> it's like oh my god. Uh, the cringe is so hard. I just, uh, oh, but I would no. like to find it. It would be nice. But what I got to ask you 
about Nick is uh, what has he taught you that no one else could? Everything. Everything. He is, you know, I think a lot of people who have done a similar shift to you and I from a very planned out, risk-averse, certainty-based career, the big question is how did you become, how did you increase your risk appetite? How did you drop that need for certainty and unlearn? You know, my whole job was so attuned to perfection that I was paid to move dot points around. Like there was that level of like granularity of perfection. And the big influence on me to, to making me more open-minded to uncertainty and feeling like a beginner and taking risks and the whole done is better than perfect mentality that now is such a big part of who I am and what I do was from him because he was always an entrepreneur. He's, he loves to say he's never had a job. He was an international athlete, so he his whole childhood was taken up by similar, I think, with ballet. That's why we, we have such similar early lives of like discipline and regimented self-management. And then we both had this huge rebellious phase in the middle where we met and then settled back down again. But um, he then just kept pivoting into self-teaching and building a digital agency. And his, uh, you know, his method is the definition of entrepreneurship is just learning new skills and filling gaps with them. And because he's always had to make his own living and he's always faced that uncertainty of where your next paycheck is coming from, he never had the comparison of a stable wage Mm. to compare it to. So he's like, risk is fine. Like it's healthy. And what's the worst that can happen? You refine the idea until it works again and you try again. Like it's not a big deal. Mm. And having that in your ear all the time is such an antidote to what my natural reflexes were, which was, oh, no, but it's not perfect. Oh, we haven't beta tested it with 5,000 people. Like if it was left to me, I would never have launched Matcha because it wasn't perfect. The copy hadn't been 10 times approved by 55 different people in a hierarchy of superiors. You know, I I was so not in the right headspace to transition and it was his constant reminder and support and his mentality kind of seeping into my work that really helped me change my whole approach to life. Mm. I remember you mentioned on um, James's episode that uh, you guys were talking about planning on having a family later this year. And my n- initial or immediate thought was babies when? <laughs> was <laughs> so, what? Was babies when? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, which I'm sure you get a lot of having been married for, have you been married for a year yet? Almost. Okay. End, of, end of October. So, um we're sort of in the same place except our wedding keeps getting delayed by this oh, COVID stuff, which is okay because we bought a new couch uh, to sort of oh. uh, <laughs> fill the gap. So Lauren's, Lauren's sweet. Yeah, Lauren's, Lauren's, she's happy. Like she's yeah, nice. loving it. Uh, to be honest with you, we're so over it now that um, if it goes from like the initial 98 people that are invited to being restricted to 20 we don't even give a shit anymore yeah. we just want to get it done just want to move on with life and so a key topic we talk about is kids so how are you guys thinking about uh kids other than the fur baby behind you well yeah i mean is he ready for a sibling isn't he <laughs> who, who could say um i think we definitely want to have kids it's so interesting how pretty much from the minute you get married. And even before, that's the question that everyone asks you first. Um, 
we've both not particularly bothered by other people's expectations. Like there's no pressure. Um, our parents would love more grandchildren. Like my mum hasn't doesn't have any yet. Uh, we have a niece and a nephew, a brand new niece actually from two weeks ago. Really? Um, from Nick's sister. Wow. So his side have got got grandchildren at the moment to kind of keep them going. We had sort of thought, you know, this would this was a big year of travel initially for work. We had a lot of work trips planned. We had a big uh, wedding of one of our best, uh, one of our groomsmen in the UK. And um, we sort of thought, you know, we'll go and do, get out of our system, all of the crazy trips that we want to do that aren't newborn or small child friendly. Like we wanted to do Egypt. We missed a lot of countries during the Arab Spring when we did the Middle Eastern trip. Yeah. You know, we wanted to go back to Africa and they're just not child friendly places. So we thought while we're already traveling, this will be our big hoorah year. And then when we will come back and then um, start to think about children then. Now with COVID, <laughs> I, to- <laughs> I told you this would happen. <laughs> Paul. There's a possum. Come here, come here. <laughs> He's like, I don't want siblings. Um, <laughs> so I think now with COVID, Nick's sister and his parents are in Tassie. Um, it was so hard that we couldn't go and be there for the birth of our niece. It's so uncertain whether, you know, I have a lot of friends now who are about to have children and can't have their husbands in the delivery room. Like there's a lot of things that impact your normal sort of pregnancy period that have made us maybe think a little bit more carefully about just getting pregnant right now. Mm. But at the same time, you know, you know, you can't wait forever. Life goes on. Right. And every don't have a child takes away a year of them having grandparents. Um, My mum's like, come on. (laughs) 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 Have you had many friends that have had like oopsie babies during this period of time? haven't had any actually have oopsie babies. I've had a lot who were like, woo, I'm pregnant. And then COVID started and then they're like, amazing. Oh. <laughs> amazing. Going to have my baby in COVID in lockdown. Like this is great. Um, yeah, no oopsie babies though, which is interesting, but lots and lots of friends have their first and are maybe onto their second children. So we're both clucky. We're definitely like, definitely want to start in the next year. Mm. And I think you get, you over-engineer it a bit, right? Like we're like, okay, well, if nine months before this, like when is the right time? And it's also like, you don't know how long it's going to take you to get pregnant. Yeah. Like, well, we had, we had two, the, one of the couples that we know spent two years and she learned, uh, they thought like there was some sort of fertility issue, but it turns out that she just had like a hormonal issue because she had like a, uh, a benign tumor on like the <gasps> base of her spine, which is like one in seven women have it. And it affects their estrogen so it it's like being on the pill permanently unless oh you take so yeah it's really fat we're just chatting to them about it she's like about 25 26 weeks at the moment and oh. they were like trying for like two years and she was like there's something something's not right here yeah and even though like they did all the fertility stuff and they were fine and uh yeah and then they worked out this little thing so it's it's not uh there's, she said to us that there's always something that comes up unless yeah. you're like one of the, you know, few who have absolutely no issues and you get pregnant within like a month. 
Well, that's the thing. It's like if you start now thinking it's going to take two years, it'll happen straight away. Yeah. If you wait two years because you're like, oh, we want to have it in two years, then it'll take you like eight years. So it's like you, you just don't know. And the big thing with us as well is I'm adopted, Nick's mum's adopted. So we don't really, really have any fertility information. Mm. Um, like my mum never had a pregnancy. So, you know, we're sort of going coming at it from a really strange fertility angle. Um, where neither of us are like, we would love to adopt a child, um, because adoption is obviously such a big thing in both of our families. So I think we'll probably in the next year start trying and then maybe adopt our second child. Like we're, mm. yeah, we're not, we're trying not to like overstructure and overthink it, even though that is what I love to do, obviously. Of course. <laughs> of course. I bet you've got like a spreadsheet for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe a few years ago in terms of the whole liberation from the old me I like absolutely love I've like fully embraced spontaneity and I hate spreadsheets and well speaking of uh, embracing spontaneity and liberating I think that probably started two years ago 2018 when the podcast started it seems at least that's that's the emphasis and, and it's sort of led to this book now as well which has got um you know, like initially I thought like, oh, yeah, this has got Jen Day written all over it. Pu- push a book and uh, let's see what story comes out from it, which would be very interesting. I think it's 2nd of September, right? It comes yes. out. a week um, from today. How has the podcast and now the book changed your personal view on imposter syndrome? Ooh. Because this is saying that Lauren, question. this is saying that Lauren really battles with. Like she's always like, uh, and I, f- I don't know if this is a female thing. I don't know if this is a personality thing, but uh, she always feels like she's not adequate enough, particularly when we're running a business together. So I'm curious to know how that's changed your perspective. Excellent question, uh, and I think. I didn't expect the podcast and writing the book to be such a big overall learning experience beyond just physically learning how to do a podcast. No. Yeah. Um, I think more than changing my perspective, it solidified what I had already started to think about it and what I had already sort of realised through making a big life transition and then becoming more open to trying new things is that you expect that as you get better at something or as you become more successful, your imposter syndrome will leave. What I had come to learn is that actually it follows you. It's Hmm. not meant to go away. In fact, if I ever woke up one day and was about to do a speaking gig and wasn't nervous and wasn't a little bit doubtful about my right to be there, I'd worry that I was complacent. I think it's at an incredibly useful thing if you know how to channel it and you let your imposter syndrome remind you that you're invested, you care about this, you're going to do a good job, you're not becoming like too comfortable in your role and you're not becoming too sure of yourself that you don't invest in like doing a good job. Mm. The problem is when you get so consumed by it that you let it dictate your decisions. So I think the most important thing is to not expect it to, to disappear but to learn how to respond to it. You either go one way and let it kind of topple you or you let it fuel you to do better. Yeah. What the book, what what the podcast and chatting to everyone has taught me is that that's true for everybody in every industry, no matter how successful you are, because every time I ask that question in to every guest from all walks of life at all ages, 
every time you step out of your comfort zone, they still get it. It doesn't leave you. It's not supposed to. It's a self-protection mechanism, but they're all able to quieten it. They don't want it to disappear. They know that they're always still, and, and you're right, it's, I think it affects women a lot more, but men still experience it. Of course, yeah. It's just women, we have like triple the amount of thoughts as a man per day. So it mm. makes sense that as a percentage, we would have more self-critical thoughts as well. But what I learned about it as well is that when the book came around, I was writing a book about all my learnings on self-doubt. And as I was writing, in my head was, this is so shit. Why am I writing this? No one's going to read it. It's terrible. Who am I to write a book? Like it, as I was writing, it was reminding me that I won't outgrow it. Like I'm writing a book. I got a book deal. Obviously someone thinks that I have something to say and yeah. I still couldn't just be comfortable in the fact that my words were worthy because it's there is like a, it's like a counterbalance to overconfidence. It's there to tell you it's a positive affirmation that you're stepping out of the comfort zone in a good way. Did you then talk about that in the book? Yeah. Like that exact moment while writing the book? Yeah, that every lesson I wrote about in the book, I learned anew in writing it down because I experienced it anew. And you would think, you know, five or six years after, my business career has now been longer than my legal career and we've had so many big milestones. Yeah. Objectively, you'd think, like, I'd be chill, like I'd wake up and just be sure of my skills. But, like, most of the time I'm like, this is, I'm a fraud. Like this is totally, I'm just making shit up as I go along. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is, um, I definitely think it's a thing that affects females more because on average, not all, but on average females are more agreeable than males. And this is saying that ha has helped Lauren and I together because I'm very disagreeable coming from a very outspoken Greek family. Um, <laughs> And she's always shocked by it, but it, I feel like it's helped her stand up for herself more. And in turn, she's made me more of a, a compassion. Like I, I'd say I'm compassionate, but she's made me a bit nicer, a bit softer around the edges when it comes mm -hmm. to um, working with other people. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the, the double checking yourself is fine but it's when you start to just constantly do it that it's almost like the way I explain it to her is like it's a waste of time or yeah. at least a waste of your energy. Yeah, totally. Process. Because you could just test it, get it out there and see what people say rather than worrying about what you think. Totally. So I think it's um, the biggest skill I've learned is to be able to think about my thoughts so instead of just being my thoughts and letting imposter syndrome be like, oh, my God, this must be true because I'm thinking it, I've got this whole second layer of thinking, which is observing the thoughts that I'm having. It's called metacognition and it's a big thing mm. in psychology that now when it comes to me, I'm able to observe it and go, yeah, that's just a reflex. It's a reflex. It's not a, like scientific truth that I'm an imposter. It's not anything. It's just a protective mechanism because I'm doing something scary, but just push it away. Just acknowledge it and push it away rather than, fueling it and keeping going down that pathway. And I think the more you're aware of it as a reflex, the less it controls you because you know that it's coming. You're not like kind of surprised when you have these weird inner critic thoughts, you're able to label it and then push it away. And I found like statistics from Sheryl Sandberg's, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, I read a lot when I was in corporate and there was a stat from a research study done by Hewlett Packard on men and women applying for promotions. Yeah. And I mean, I think sometimes separating the male and female behaviors 
makes the gap bigger. Sometimes it actually just helps you understand better so that you can make the gap or the inequality smaller. Mm. So this one helped me enormously. Men will apply for a promotion when they have like 60% of the criteria because they genuinely believe they can figure out the other 40% on the job. Women will wait until they have 120% of the criteria. So even if their skills are exactly the same as the men, they lose the job because the men have had, they have a time advantage. They've applied earlier and there's no position anymore. So it's not an inequality of the institution at all. It's just that men by default can get over their self-doubt quicker and just apply. And that made me realize if I don't get over that, I'll miss out every time because the jobs are already taken. So you need to make that 120 down to 180, 60 and match the men in your cohort, otherwise you'll fall behind. And that's really stuck with me that there are some fundamental differences between men and women's default approach to foreign staff, to challenge, to newness. Mm. and But that's also comes down to the nature of men and women. Like I remember I've had this discussion, Lauren and I have had this discussion so many times that if you think about it, like dating for men and women is such a bizarre, like they're polar opposites yeah. because, <laughs> because men, it's like, it's all about quantity, but for women, it's all about quality, but there's, there, there are reasons for that mm. biologically. And so you've just got to be aware of that fact and realize that just like anxiety, a lot of the things don't imply, don't apply in the modern world but that is your biology and you've got to get used to it. Did you guys find that since you started working together, understanding those fundamental differences that are male and female, not you and your girlfriend specifically or fiancé, but I found that since reading about like the love languages, for example, and understanding, you know, reading men are from Mars, women are from Venus, it sounds ridiculous, but you actually learn an enormous amount about the default positions that both of you are coming from. Mm -hmm. And it helps you find a middle ground because you understand that, for example, when I'm, I've lost it, we've had a failure, or I'm just like lamenting something and stressing and whatever. If Nick comes and tries to say straight away, let's like, this is how you fix it. He's not dismissing that it's, I'm having an emotional response. He's just trying to, like, that's his way. Trying to solve problems is his way of showing love. Mm. And I would find for ages, I was like, why do you always fucking shut my ideas down? Like if I have a great (laughs) idea and the first thing you always say is, oh, what about that problem? I think you're being an asshole. He thinks he's being caring because he's showing me how to make it better. Yeah. And those small things that used to cause so many arguments, once you understand them and you understand your communication differences, it like opens up this whole new world of you guys being able to achieve stuff together. Yeah, 100%. I think um, the idea, uh, there's been this whole idea that men and women are the same for a few years now. I just, I've never we've never ever believed that believe that fact like through just living life and there's so many examples of that like what you just spoke about i just read a book called come as you are by emily nagakowski nagakowski uh and it's just about uh well it's basically about the science of sex and it's really fascinating oh. because it talks about how they basically know that sex drive is not a thing and there there are large differences between men and women but um that it's actually not a you know singular thing that defines whether you've got a sex drive or not it's it's actually a polar system where there's a break and an accelerator that's really interesting 
But that in in and of itself, just one one book in and of itself just highlights that, I think. Mm. Um, and we've we've always believed that, the two of us. Um, and it just means that you have to get better at um debating certain topics. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I think one thing that I've been able to do well is I will always, if an argument or a debate is getting heated, I'll just say, let's come back to this in 15, 20 minutes. And we both realized that um it's uh, most of the time it's like, what was, what's the point of this? Like yeah. the, sometimes you can argue over like, should this cup go on the left side or the right <laughs> side of the cupboard? <laughs> and like in the moment, you're just like, this is such an important argument, but it is not. <laughs> the cup represents so many things. Oh, it's just like, oh, and then like you start reading into it like this, you know, the fact that you don't like the cup this way or that way. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I would totally agree with that. Um I'm realizing we're about to get it's just on 12:15. I want to jump into some rapid fire questions, but I'm going to ask about coronavirus. Yes. How do you think you've applied some of the principles in the book during the stage 4 period? Oh my gosh, such a juicy question. I think the biggest one has been that my whole transition over the past few years couldn't have prepared me better for being isolated. So I've learned how to strip back productivity, achievement, and my external world from my worth. Whereas before my whole identity was wrapped up in that. Now I'm comfortable in myself, regardless of whether I'm achieving on, I mean, not all the time, of course, but I'm a lot better at it because I've been able to sort of strip back the lawyer title, strip back those social milestones that I was kicking, strip back the titles and prestige and figure out who I was separately to that. Figure out who I was when the businesses were failing or having a tough time. Figure out who I was when I had a complete breakdown and I couldn't work. You know, I've been through so much stuff that taught me how to be a bit more still and still find worth in myself when I'm not just constantly achieving. And I think it also has made me go from someone who craved certainty and planning and a had a 5, 10, 15 year plan and probably knew, you know, where I'd be when I was 60. Like I, 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 could, I would be in the same office, you know, just a little bit more wrinkled and stressed and, you know, but doing the same stuff to getting used to an environment where nothing is certain and exploiting that and appreciating that as an opportunity. Like now I say, when nothing is certain, anything is possible. It's the most exciting basis to move from is if you're too planned, you exclude the possibility of any other better plan. But when it's uncertain, it means you can be anyone you want. You can strip back at everything and everyone is starting from kind of an even playing field. And I genuinely feel for the people who have never had to be still with themselves outside of busy because Busy makes you feel like you're participating in society. It makes you feel like you're happy with yourself and you've got a purpose. When you're sitting at home doing nothing and not doing the normal things that make you feel like you, if it's the first time, it's terrible. It's enormously confronting. I've just felt so grateful that the business journey has given us a bit of a head start to working from home isn't foreign. Sitting in, in our stillness isn't foreign. Being uncertain about our jobs isn't foreign. You know, all of the big markers of isolation are something our jobs are like every day. Yeah. And pivoting isn't foreign. So figuring out other ways to work that, you know, you didn't have to do before, that's all something we've had a big head start on, I think. And I think this period in particular is, I don't know, I feel like it is devastating 
but uh, for people who with the right mindset, it will be one of the greatest opportunities of the next 30 years of your life. Absolutely. So I, I, I think about that a lot at the moment because when things get tough, it means that other people are finding it tough and other people are breaking a bit earlier than you are. That mm. just is probably the competitive nature in myself. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, all right. Rapid fire questions to finish off. What does the morning and evening routine look like at the moment? Oh, morning is meditate first thing for uh, 10 to 20 minutes. I do Vedic meditation. Um, absolute game changer for my anxiety. And then I used to go out for breakfast every single day. It was like my one vice that helps oh. me set up my routine, get across my emails and the schedule for the day. So now I kind of recreate that myself. I get the paper make smashed avocado, sit at a different table to where I work and we all eat breakfast together and do the crossword, which is a lovely routine. And then evening, I don't read a book like you do, but to wind down every single night, I have to have like at least an hour of Netflix just to like decompress right. the brain. And it has to be like trashy or like totally unrelated to my life. So Like Pretty Little Liars or something like that. Oh, sometimes like that, but more the crime. Like uh-huh. Makes how to sense. get away with murder. Like yeah. totally totally fucking unrealistic but i love it <laughs> love it i soak it up i watched it oh sorry, sorry. You no you go i was gonna say i watched zero dark 30 last night because i oh. freaking love war movies i've seen it so many times but i just was like my brain needs to be totally absorbed in an operation and like i loved it yeah i was gonna say you've mentioned that a few times you I, i'm obsessed me and my dad are obsessed with like war history i was wondering <gasps> if you listened to um uh he's got like a collection of world war Two like books that probably are about, about 20 there's probably 20 different volumes and it literally covers like each campaign and battle oh uh, it's ridiculous um do you listen to hardcore history at all i do okay i haven't in a while but the podcast yeah Love yeah it's it. a fucking brilliant show i'm just uh i've been listening to the recent episodes where they talk about the rise of the, the empire of japan it's just really <gasps> really fascinating um so that's stuff that I used to find really boring and it's only been in the last like five years that I've realised the reason I like certain movies and shows is because of the human history and the evolution oh, yeah. of like human, the human. Like I always am like why the frick am I so yay focused and all I like to consume is like murder, serial killers and war. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it does make sense because it's all about... But it's also all about the brain. It's all about joy and the human condition and challenge. Like it's the same themes of like how we thrive under certain circumstances and what we can be pushed to. Mm. On the point of meditation, uh, I've just always wondered this. Why do you meditate in the morning and not use it uh, like at a, at a, as a break time during the day? Because I, I do it. I really struggle to meditate in the morning. I do it in sort of like the afternoon. Mm. But um, um, I think James Harrison is the same. He'll do it when he wakes up. Yeah, I do both. So Vedic, um, the training that I've done in Vedic meditation is 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. So at any one time, like the morning is setting up your brain, like it's setting your alpha waves and your kind of mode, letting, allowing you to wake up into the day, get in touch with your senses before you start the day rather than going straight to your phone or straight to action, which kind of sets up your day in like a jolt of energy. Mm. But then it does also you do, you're meant to meditate again at three or four o'clock to give yourself that sort of reset in the middle of the day or before you, either before you finish work or whatever it is. But yeah, you're meant to follow it up with a 20 minute in the afternoon so that at any one time you're close 
to your next meditation so that you never get, your brain can never get too far ahead of yourself without you pulling it back. Okay. But it, it's a twice a day practice. If I only did one, I probably would do it in the afternoon. Um, last question for you. If you had to pick an item, 200 bucks or less, that you bought before or during this period that you, you've used a lot, uh, and it could be for you, it could be for Nick, it could be for the dog, could be could be for the business, anything at all, what would it be? That I keep or? Just that you use anything. Oh, could be a God. subscription. Oh, man. Um like for me recently, it was uh, a subscription to binge and we watched Succession. Uh, nice. Just being obsessed with media and Succession is like, a, honestly, probably will take over Game of Thrones as like the TV wow. show. Yeah. Okay. So mine would probably be not a particular item, but my um, loyalty card at Jeffrey's Books up the street, uh-huh. like local to us. Not at the moment, unfortunately, in stage four, they had to close. But in stage three, so pretty much from March, my indulgence was I don't, re- I'm not a big drinker. We don't, I'm not really a big fashionista either. My big indulgences are going out to eat because I freaking love food and books. I love reading and I don't make enough time. Well, I, before COVID, I didn't make enough time for it. But the whole, development of the section of CZA that's for play and for doing things that aren't related to your work and that just you forget what time it is. Reading fiction books is like such a pleasure for me. And in ISO, I was like, we can't do anything else. So I'm just going to go and drop like all my money on books. And once a week I would go and buy like 10 new books and just read them. And then my whole, like I pass them around and send them to friends. So they get read by a lot of different people, but that has brought me so much joy. I've read some of the most wonderful books and discovered new authors that I had never heard of before just because I walk into the shop and I'm like, I read these three and I love them, give me 10. And the, yeah. the shop assistants will like say, well, these are blah, blah, blah. And I've read all these things I never would have, I would never have chosen based on the synopsis or whatever, but they've been some of the best books I've read and I love it. I would agree with that. I've actually found that um, apart from a few TV shows, we've been incredibly bored watching things on TV. <laughs> so I've just been like, I read, but now we've been really reading. I feel like I'm reading a book every half a week at the moment. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Sarah, thanks for coming on. Where can Go people ahead. find you on the interwebs? Everywhere. I live there. <laughs> <laughs> um, CCA podcast, uh, spoonful of Sarah on Instagram or CZA on Instagram. My pretty much every of the matcha Instagram and emails, they all come to me directly. I spend a lot of time answering messages, Uh, but you can get me anyway, really. I'm like infinitely accessible. (laughs) Uh, Sarah, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. Thanks for listening in to this episode. If you like it, do leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us continue going on a weekly basis and we do love reading those reviews as well. Uh, If you want the show notes, you can find that below or with our previous guests at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. To watch the full video, search Uncommon Show on YouTube and to keep up to date with behind the scenes and clips for the show, you can find us at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening.